Hi, this is Michael Gebert, and I need to ask you to do something for Nitrateville Radio. Go to iTunes, log in if you aren't already, and leave a rating and a review for this podcast. We need a certain number for an average rating to be displayed. Considering that right now, at least, our average rating is a perfect five stars, that would help encourage other people to listen. But also, the more ratings we have, the more likely we are to be displayed when people look at other film podcasts. So please, if you enjoy this podcast and want to encourage it, take a few moments, leave us the rating and review you think is fair, and help other people find out about what we're doing. Thanks. I figure these people have worked real hard uh, at this, and I need to uh, make sure that the gags they put in there get the laugh they deserve. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. When Knighthood Was in Flower is a flowery title from 1922, for a film that's a lavish delight, starring the comedian and girlfriend of William Randolph Hearst, Marion Davies. It's out now on Blu-ray and DVD, thanks to this episode's guest, Ben Modell, who'll talk about that, playing piano for the Museum of Modern Art, and more. And as the Knights of Old would say, forsooth, pray thee visit iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and click to subscribe so no episode goes unheard. And favor us with a rating or a review at iTunes to help other knaves discover our fair podcast. Once upon a time, there was a magical land on the internet called Usenet, where there were bulletin boards where you could talk about anything. And in that land, there was one tiny village there called alt.movies.silent, which was known for being unusually friendly and helpful. Now, I'm not saying people couldn't get into endless, utterly pointless arguments there. This was still the internet. But early on, it attracted not just fans of silent movies, but people who really did stuff with them. And an ordinary person, like me, could converse person to person with people like film distributors, or authors whose books I'd read, or even guys who played the piano for silent movies on Laserdisc. Yeah, that's about how long ago it was. Usenet's basically dead now. But the same spirit of class-free open discussion carries on at topic-specific discussion sites like Nitrateville, as well as in certain groups on giant social media platforms like Facebook and on Twitter. Still, there was one difference between the big guys in the field and us ordinary folks. 
a film distributor put out films on Laserdisc or DVD or whatever. We didn't do that. But now we can and do. In this episode, I talk with Ben Modell, who is best known as a piano accompanist for the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And he's played the music for a number of silent film releases from major labels. But he's one of several people who have also pioneered a method for commercially releasing silent films that otherwise would have stayed locked in the vaults by tapping into the crowdfunding power of these internet silent film communities. Just as Usenet flattened class distinctions in talking about silent films, people like Ben, Ed LaRusso, Eric Grayson, and others are using the internet to flatten the restoration and distribution of rare films. We'll get to all that, but we're going to take the long way around in this episode, the same way Ben did. In the first part of our conversation, we talk about how he got into silent films, and more importantly, into the business of playing music for silent films. I had been a, a film production major at NYU. I was a filmmaker first, uh, and I got to film school, and you know, the first year you take a basic film history class. It's a requirement. The first semester is silent. The second semester is sound up through uh, the 50s, you know, Italian neorealism and that sort of stuff. And this is in the late, this is the early 1980s, before video. And so the silent films were shown on 16 millimeter film, double perf prints with no tracks in complete silence. And I had grown up uh, being a piano player uh, of sorts. I was not pro uh, I was not conservatory material uh, by any stretch of the imagination, and anyone who's heard me play can still say that. And I, uh, but I had a good teacher who's supportive of my interests and let me play ragtime as well as doing the classical stuff and theory and a little improvisation. I also grown up being a huge fan of silent movies, especially comedy shorts from the time I was a toddler because they used to show them on television, and I had. I got to NYU Film School having made a lot of Super 8 films uh, in middle school and high school, but also um, in addition to seeing silent movies on, on public television on the silent years, I grew up in Larchmont, New York, where Walter Kerr lived. And when I was 12, I had gotten a copy of The Silent Clowns, which he wrote, and my folks had heard he had a huge collection of 16mm film, and I wrote him a letter, and four days later he called me up and said, yes, I'd be happy to show you films from my collection. So I would go over a few times a year, you know, on a Monday night when he wasn't reviewing theater, and he would just say, well, what do you want to see? So I arrived at film school, uh, having seen all the Chaplin films in Keaton and Harry Langdon and Raymond Griffith and Harold Lloyd and all that stuff, and it bothered me that the silent films were being shown to a few hundred film students on a weekly basis, and they were dying. The films, I mean. Um, the films were dying in front of all these film students, and I don't know what possessed me, but the second year of college, I decided to volunteer to play for the film screenings. Went to the head of the department, who loved the idea, and uh, I started playing for a class, a basic film history class that was taught by Robert Sklar. And so, by at some point in that year, Charles Silver, who passed away recently, uh, uh, was at the Museum of Modern Art, had heard somehow through the grapevine, this is just, you know, before the way before the internet that I was doing this and he was teaching a class at Bridgeport University this is again back in the 80s when Bridgeport had a very reputable film program um, 
and needed uh, Charles needed uh, a musical accompaniment and contacted me. So I, I don't know if I got paid for that either, but I was so I was playing uh, for this class at NYU. I was playing for this class that Charles was teaching, and then the last two or three years of of college, I was playing for Bill Everson's classes, and um, the. I have this vivid memory of getting a call from someone at MoMA. Uh, they needed someone to play for a screening of Way Down East, and this was right, right when I, right after I graduated, I was uh, given the original score to play, which thankfully had a few pages missing during the ice flow sequence. So you improvised that? Yeah, that I improvised, and I didn't have to use the, uh, the 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 written score from 1918 or whatever it's it, it's from. Which by uh, by 1918 standards, 1919 standards, was probably fine, but it's uh, doesn't hold up uh, all that well. If you if you ask if you ask me, it seems very it's very repetitive and very cartoony uh, and full of m- music that people know today, which has a different meaning. You know, Lillian Gish's theme is th- those endearing young charms, and if you watch a lot of Warner Brothers cartoons, you know. Every, it's uh, every time you I hear that I think of Daffy Doug playing a xylophone and exploding, <laughs> and uh, and in the way the score is structured, it's what I call Peter and the Wolf scoring. So anytime a character shows up, you play their theme, regardless of what's going on dramatically. Uh, so, but there were a, a handful of pages missing during the ice flow sequence, and I, I was able to do what I wanted to. Uh, and it, it was it was just a thrill uh, for me, and uh, um, I, I played sporadically there for for uh, many years, uh, mostly just uh, playing when uh, Stuart Oderman or Donald Sosin weren't available. I mean, they must have had pianists going back into, you know, the Iris Berry days of the '40s and '50s. I would think. Or were they... Oh yeah, they from when they started showing film at MoMA, they hired uh, Arthur Kleiner. Uh, who had been a, ball- a ballet accompanist for Balanchine and had played in Berlin in, in movie houses. Um, so from 35 or the late 30s uh, all the way through ni- 1967 or 68, uh, Arthur Kleiner was playing. He had an office and he had filing cabinets full of music and, and uh, notes on all the films. And he was their full-time staff. Um and then when he retired, you know, there's there's one or two uh, there's these two LPs that he made on a an El Cheapo brand uh, label, uh, I think it's Golden Award or Golden Crest or something like that. Uh, music for silent comedies and musical moods for the silent films, um, which you can find uh, uh, in in record bins and eBay today. But he was there for all that time, and then for a year was a guy named Charles Hoffman, uh, and then William Perry was there from I think '69 until some point in the earlier mid eighties. And when I started playing for films, I went to hear anybody I could in New York who was playing for films. Just there's no book on how to do this. So I met Bill Perry and he answered a whole bunch of questions of mine. And I, I think I had a couple of phone calls with Donald it was very helpful. And I met Stuart and heard him play. And I went uh, to the Carnegie hall cinema and I met Lee Irwin who had been in a theater organist in the movie theaters in the 1920s. And was in his 70s at that time, uh, was a house organist at the Carnegie Hall Cinema, which had an Wurlitzer in it. And he and I became friends, and he became a friend and a mentor to me, and I just pelted him with questions about what do I do for this scene, what do I do for that scene, 
Uh, I've tried this. What do you think? I'm just constantly asking him questions and getting feedback and playing things for him. Um, but I was just playing piano at that point, even though I, w- I would go hang out with him at the theater and there's a Wurlitzer there. Um, I have no idea why, but I didn't get interested in the organ until much later. So, um, yeah, I mean, what? how do you typically play for a film? Um, you probably don't have a score at most. You might have a theme. Do you get a chance to see it beforehand? Well, there's a, there's a wide range of scenarios. And uh, going from, uh, no, I've never seen this and I don't tell the audience, um, uh, to playing for movies like Steamboat Bill Jr. or One Week, which are old friends of mine and I know them <laughs> extremely well. And so you know what's coming and what to play and you'll have themes. And, and then there are the, all the scenarios in between where um, I will play for a film that I haven't seen in several years and a theme I came up with during that last show will come out of my hands again uh, without my planning it. Um, so, uh, you know, ideally I'll watch the film once ahead of time and make a long, a long list of story notes. So I have that in front of me so I can stay ahead of the film and anticipate, um, so that I'm not playing anything that's going to seem out of sync. Uh, what I thought was interesting, uh, I had an idea to do a series at MoMA, uh, where we would find Arthur Kleiner's scores and play uh, them with some of these films. And all of his stuff is in a special collection collection at the uh, University of Minnesota, I believe. Um, and at the time I was having this idea, a grad student at that university had completely unrelated, uh, although perhaps it was cosmically, contacted the Department of Film at MoMA and this young this young woman was doing a, a paper on Kleiner, and I connected with her, and she went through a lot of the boxes. I was telling her what I was trying to do, and all the boxes of scores were music manuscript paper. What was what was on them were long lists of story notes for the films, and a few bars of a melody scratched out here and there. Huh. And I thought, oh, I'm not. It's not just me who works this way. I thought I was going to find tons of fully written out scores and. Uh, it looked like most of what was in there was 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 that. Um, so uh, that's often what I'll have in front of me, as well as uh, some themes that I've worked out ahead of time. Or if there's specific specific piece of music where somebody sits down at a piano, picks up a piece of music, puts it on the music rack, there's a close up of it, and then they play it. Uh, or the same thing with a Victrola uh, record, a gramophone, a label, uh, a record label. Uh, you have to play it, uh, even if it's awfully obscure, because you never. If there's one person in the audience who knows the song, they're going to come up to you afterward and say, "Hey, why didn't you play?" You know, whatever, whatever it is. Um, so uh, I try to prepare that way. But I remember vividly going up to Lee Irwin at the the organ console after the first show. I saw him play, and there's like three pages of music. I said, "Where's the rest of it?" And he said, "Oh, it's up." He pointed at his head. It's oh, it's up all up here. You know, it it improvised. Uh, the entire thing and it's one of the ways that films were scored as well as compiled scores where people were reading sheet music the entire time uh, to come fully written out scores for a specific film uh, to people who you know Lee, Lee's mentor in Huntsville Alabama was a guy who couldn't read or write music and was completely self-taught and played by ear so you had a wide range of things. Mom I'm sure 
shows so many kinds of things. Do you ever get stumped by a film? Do you get like a Japanese silent or something like that and you just don't know what to do with it? I've never been completely stumped. Uh, You know, one of the things that opened me up a great deal in terms of my playing was uh, there were a number of years in the the early 90s and late 80s when I was doing uh, improvisational comedy and sketch comedy. And a lot of that training, you know, making a, a decision and diving in and uh, justifying it and making it work and also being uh, ready on, uh, on, the, on the spur of the moment to shift gears because somebody else has come in with a, a, a pile driver and a, and, and a snow cone machine uh, and a French accent. <laughs> uh, you're like, OK, uh, we're going to, you know, let, let's let's uh, let's build a snow cone factory right here. Pierre and you you know that training really helped me and so uh one of the things I, I try to do is play music that isn't so specific that it if I am caught off guard it's not gonna seem completely wrong that it's uh so much of silent film is about what the audience is doing in terms of assembling everything in their head and um playing music that isn't quite so specific allows the audience to fuse it all together and even if you're caught off guard you can shift gears and the audience will still make it work in their head i mean occasionally uh, they'll you'll get a film that you haven't seen and you don't know where it's going stylistically um i my my first time i i saw and played for an ozu film uh, it was i was born but and it was at moma and we there was a series of japanese films and i had played for uh um uh uh, I'm blanking on the title. The the Kunigasa film that that is oh, not Page of Man. Not Page of Man is the other one. There's oh, another one. <laughs> okay. Where that's a, a lot more linear, but it's very sad and it's tragic. And a, a woman has dishonored herself, and 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 uh, people die, and it's sad. And there was another film with a similar dark and dour, tragic tone to it. And then this film comes on. And I thought, okay, and I start in a minor key, very slowly, and I realize, oh. This is like a Hal Roach comedy. Yeah, yeah. It's... And I quickly shifted into a major, quickly shifted into a major key after a minute or two, and just went with it. And it happens. It happens. Uh, I mean, there there are circumstances where there is no screener. A film has come in from a foreign archive, and sometimes what I'll I'll do is I'll ask if there is a, a live translation, which we almost always have at, at MoMA. Can I get at least the titles uh, uh, printed out for me? Uh, in English, so I'll have that on the music rack. So that allows me to stay ahead of the story and also get the information from the titles. One of the things that um, I've realized that I've, I've trained myself to do is read the intertitles of anything faster than the audience, uh-huh. <laughs> because you have to get you have to stay ahead. And usually the meat is at the end. So I'll I'll read the the beginning of a title, jump to the end, and jump to the middle, then back to the end. And sometimes, if it, like if it's a comedy, I will laugh about a, a <laughs> half a second before, before the audience does because I've gotten the joke uh, before they have. And even if I'm not playing, sometimes that'll happen. Just to, I uh, because that that's part of of uh, scoring a film uh, in that setting is that you're looking all over the frame for clues 
all the time. And sometimes it's obvious if you're playing for a Larry Seaman comedy and somebody brings in a gigantic four-foot vase, okay, it's going to land on somebody's head and probably be filled with tar. But in, in a drama, you're looking at a window or a door or you're looking at the different people in the shot or how the the scene is blocked and you can see if uh, maybe somebody's going to come in. You're just looking at body language constantly to anticipate uh, what somebody is about to do um, so that you can anticipate the dramatic moments and not so much smack the keys uh, and and line things up, but just so that you can lean into it and underscore the dramatic action of a scene. Well, that's that brings up an interesting point, mentioning underscoring, that you're not you're not playing a full piece of music in the sense that Beethoven composed a symphony. You're often just kind of keeping a mood going. Yeah, I mean, the thing, the difference is is that, and this is why I think uh, a lot of those mood cues were written, is that regular classical music shifts mood within a 16-bar phrase, and then it'll repeat and go back. And if you need to sustain Mysterioso or Agitato or whatever, for a minute, you need you need music that does that and you you also need to be able to shift gears on a dime and you can't if you're not finished with the piece you're playing and the scene is over you got to wrap it up and, and transition into the next scene it's almost like the chord structure is driven by the tra- dramatic action uh of what's on screen or uh the comedic rhythms and and even w- within comedy there are different comedians that have different rhythms uh harry langdon uh, is different from Keaton and Lloyd, which is different from Laurel and Hardy. They all have their own uh, tempos and and meters, and and I find that by uh, the more I understand about those things, uh, the more the better I can underscore them, so the gags work better. It's not a matter of playing something that's funny, but uh, getting inside the mentality of stands reactions in wrong again or or uh harry langdon where uh, my feeling is that the slapstick is going on inside his head so i watch his eyes by getting the music to support uh the inter- uh, the internal uh monologue in some cases even with the comedian uh for gags to get better better laughs or the the right laugh i figure these people have worked real hard uh at this and i need to uh, make sure that the gags that they put in there get the laugh they deserve. Ben also collects films, and at a certain point he realized he could put together the whole package, public domain silent films with his own musical accompaniment. He was able to do that because of a new model that was just starting to come into existence via sites like Kickstarter. The whole thing really started with uh, a stack of films I had accumulated, offbeat comedy shorts, things that you can win easily on eBay, and there uh, never uh, came up opportunities for them to be shown. Uh, and I figured if I have these things and nobody can see them, then what the heck's the point? And uh, it started out with uh, a YouTube channel uh, where I had some things scored, uh, trans- transferred, and then I scored them and uploaded them as a litmus test to see would anybody be interested in this. And at the same time, this is maybe five, uh, yeah, about five years ago, I became very interested in 
um, crowdsourcing and crowdfunding. And this is when Kickstarter was starting to tip. And I had this idea, and I knew the nuts and bolts of how to make a DVD uh, and been looking into print-on-demand service that Amazon has called CreateSpace, which they do for uh, books, uh, CDs, and DVDs. The idea was I wanted to see if I could make a DVD and release it. And I wasn't looking to make money, you know. Uh, and I still don't look at, at, at what I'm doing as a money-making operation. Uh, I always think of there's a quote uh, by Ernie Kovacs that I love. It's from one of his ABC specials uh, when he's introducing one of his, what he called sound into, uh, sound into sight uh, music pieces. He said, you know, it's, it's because of my love of, of music uh, that I'm here. The money means nothing. The money is nothing. Consequently, the money means nothing. The, yeah. the money is very little. I subscribed to a blog of a guy named Seth Godin, who's uh, one of the, uh, I, I don't know if marketing guru is, is, is the right word, but he, uh, like people like Daniel Pink and Malcolm Gladwell and Eric Barker and a few other people are are very much in tune with where things are now in terms of access being the new commodity as opposed to control of content uh in the same way that he you know he feels he he talks about being part of that we're all part of the uh, what he calls a, a, a connection economy and uh at the same time i was thinking should i do a kickstarter will it work blah 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 and i had a, a modest mailing list and this is when louis ck um produced and released his beacon theater concert made it available only on his website for five bucks and he made back his costs over the weekend uh, because he was connected to his fan base. And I don't have a, the fan base that Louis C.K. does, but uh, between the, my own email list and I had also been working on uh, learning and understanding how Twitter and Instagram work. Um, and uh, so between those three things and uh, – uh, through participating on Nitrateville, I figured I had a, at least a, a way of reaching people who would be interested in seeing these films. And so that's how I launched the first Kickstarter. And uh, I can't remember how quickly it funded, but it, it, it maybe took a, a couple of weeks. Uh, and this, is, this was at the tail end of 2012. And I don't know uh, that anyone had done something like this uh, yet in this in the classic film world, maybe one or two people, but it was still very early on. And the idea of a fan-funded uh, project like this, uh, the, the DVD actually did sort of well, considering what it was, because I got a nice write-up in the New York Times um, by Dave Kerr, who is now a curator at, at MoMA's Department of Film. Um, but I knew I had to that the key was to have uh, three elements was to have uh, good HD scans, good image quality, to have good music, and to have good artwork. A lot of uh, releases by outfits that are not Kino and Criterion and Flickr Alley miss on one of those. And I was very lucky uh, in that I, I've been friends with and worked with Marlene Weissman. Uh, for the last, uh, well, it's now it's about 20 years. Um, Marlene uh, does all the graphic design for the Silent Clowns film series, but she is a brilliant artist, brilliant graphic designer, and she had worked in the 90s on Saturday Night Live during the Dana Carvey, Phil Hartman, 
John Lovitz, Jan Hook, that that era, designing you know fake product boxes and <laughs> logos like the. Like if you go to her website, you, she has screen caps, and you see like the Wayne's World logo is something that she came up with, and and some of the other super the product that cereal that uh, had a fake commercial for Super Colon Blow, and that all these different things like that, and similar things for Late Night with David Letterman, you know she knew how to design something that looked uh, good, and it wasn't just taking um, a trade ad or a, a poster for a film and sticking it on the front of a DVD case. I didn't set out to become uh, a label, but I, uh, I think a lot. Well, there was enough money between royalties from *Accidentally Preserved* Volume One and the extra money that had come in from the funding from the Kickstarter to do a second volume. The next thing I, I was working on was the *Musty Suffer* project, and uh, that's what led to my having this co-branding arrangement with the Library of Congress because I would go down because in, in addition to MoMA I'm a regular accompanist at the, the Library of Congress at the Packard Campus Theater and I do five six shows a year or three or four or whatever plus playing for Mostly Lost so I'm down there a lot and would talk to Rob Stone and Mike Michon about this DVD business model I remember Rob asked well how many units do you have to sell before you break even and I said zero you know, and this is this is the whole thing is uh, the the big boys like Criterion, Flickr, Alley, Kino. Um, it's important to know that you're going to sell two or three thousand units before investing the kind of money that those companies invest in a, in, a, in a release. And what I was looking to do was produce something where access was uh, was key, uh, so that if people wanted to see whatever it is I was putting out. It was available in a quality package. Um, and so the production costs were covered up front by the Kickstarter. All right, I want to talk about that model because I think that's really interesting. When Kick, Kickstarter first started, a lot of it was, I'm going to go climb Kilimanjaro or whatever. Will you give me money for this dream of mine? And if you can find enough friends who'll toss you 25 or 50 bucks, you know, then you go climb Mount Kilimanjaro. But then you saw models that are essentially what you're following, which are like, here's the thing that I could make if I get X number of people to buy it in advance, you know, at a, at a market competitive price, you know, 25 bucks for a DVD. If I get that number, I'll make it. If I don't, I don't. You're not asking for handouts with that. You're funding the manufacturer of something with pre-sales. And that's where Nitrateville and other communities of enthusiasts come into the picture because you can pre-sell it very effectively to those communities. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that I had been researching along with crowdfunding and uh, printing on demand was um, I, I've just been fascinated with, with this whole, you know, the, this era that we're in with, with social media um, and uh, looking at, watching a lot of uh, webinars and videos done by or for people in the music business because the bottom fell out for them, you know, 15, 20 years ago once, once iTunes, you know, uh, completely removed the, the possibility of making money from album sales. Okay, there's no money in album sales. Uh, what do you do? And this is, this is the thing uh, that I was mentioning about a, a connection economy is that if you – the difference is that now because of social media, and it's which is free – um, uh, if you like uh, a certain band, you can 
connect with the, the lead singer or the guitar player uh, and, and write to them and they can write back to you. Whereas before all this, it was there was no way to do that. And by having that connection, um, if someone is, at, you know, it's just just like anything, uh, cold calling somebody or asking a friend to do something uh, are two different things. And uh, if you've, you're connected to your fans and vice versa, this is the way uh, to to earn a living. And, and uh, there are people who will release albums for nothing and then ask their fans to send in money. And they and they do. The whole idea is to uh, connect with people uh, uh, through social media, get them onto your email list, which is much more effective um, as a way of, of reaching people. And uh, and the guy from Patreon created this thing. It's sort of like a virtual. For those of you, for those if you don't know what Patreon is, it's like a virtual tip jar or passing the hat online, where you can sign up for Patreon. And if you like a certain artist, you can pledge a dollar or two bucks or 50 bucks or whatever. And anytime they uh, release a new podcast or put a, post a new music video, your credit card gets charged that. But if you have enough people chiming in, uh, it's like passing a hat after you've played a couple of songs at a gig. Um, so the, we're, we're in this, this era where um, and there are no stores to go sell your product. Uh, but if we all know each other and we're connected through Twitter, Instagram, um, or, or email or, or posting forums like Nitrateville, we can help each other out because we know each other. It's, it's the wonderful world of you just never know who's out there. I mean, there's a guy in Switzerland who's pledged to every one of my Kickstarters. Um, there's somebody, I got pledges for the Marion Davies uh, Kickstarter from someone in Qatar and someone in Singapore and Spain and a few people in the Netherlands. Um, and it's it's really it's really uh, it's this it's this wonderful thing that we have now, where anyone on Earth uh, can let you know that they like what you do. Uh, there's a guy who messaged me over my YouTube channel who's in Iran and said, "When are you posting something again? This is the only way I can see obscure silent silent comedy shorts <laughs> here in Iran. Let me you know." And so um, this this. Uh, What's what's been great is that a lot of people have picked up on this, and uh, you were talking about uh, projects that have funded primarily or th initially uh, with a, a huge uh, dent is made in the project uh, through Kickstarter uh, through Nitrateville. I think Ed LaRusso has proven that he's done I don't know four or five Kickstarters, and without being as intently involved with other social media, just just reaching out to folks on Nitrateville, he's he'll he'll fund something in a couple of days. Collaboration is a big part of Ben's releases, starting with his collaboration with the Library of Congress, who preserves and restores the films which he then takes to the next level of commercial viability. He also collaborated with a recent Nitrateville radio guest, film historian Steve Massa, on bringing attention to a forgotten silent comedy star. What's great is that this, this business model Works. The Library of Congress is a wonderful uh, uh, exception to the, the, the thing of, oh, I can't get my hands on this because an archive has it, uh, where for decades the, you, you've always been able to get stuff out of the Library of Congress and you just needed to, to have or – and now again with crowdfunding, you can raise the money 
and send copies of, of it to, of what, what you've gotten out to, to 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 people who are interested. I want to take a moment to sum up the whole ecosystem here because this is pretty remarkable. You've got the Library of Congress who have the films and will sell you the high quality transfer, assuming there's no you know rights issue blocking it or anything like that. There's you, the producer, who adds music, tinting, commentary tracks, packaging, everything a label does. Yeah. There's the social media aspect. You've got Nitrateville and Facebook groups and Twitter, which is both where you raise the money and also where you market the final product. And then there's Amazon, who will manufacture and fulfill the product. So nearly every step of this is something that was totally out of the average person's reach a few years ago but now is accessible to them and really very affordable when it's not, in fact, entirely free. Yeah, you, you, you can say what you want about Amazon, but, you know, this, this is the thing that, that um, somebody a few years, when I was starting this maybe four or five years ago, somebody posed a question on Facebook, you know, where do you get your content? Do you buy your DVDs on Amazon? Do you buy them direct from the label? Do you stream? Do you download? And I watched all these answers come in, and the consensus was I buy physical media and I buy it on Amazon. And what I realized is that there is no – there's no like being on Amazon and really being on Amazon, you know. <laughs> and so as long as you had a quality product that – you know, again, the, 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 gra- the artwork is so important because it's the first thing that people see. And if you – uh, have artwork that looks a little cheesy, it's that's going to uh, come off looking that way to someone who doesn't know you. And one of the things that are very important, and this is a, something I always ask people to do, whether it's my Kickstarter or anything else, is that um, customer reviews on Amazon are, are very, very important because it gooses the algorithm for, especially for obscure things, so that if uh, the whole uh, people who bought this also bought this gets gets recommended to people, and people have told me that that's how they found the mishaps of Musty Suffer or Marcel Perez because they were surfing around, and uh, that that little strip below the thing you're you're about to buy, they'll see it. And the artwork, I mean, I've sold copies of the Perez DVD at shows just on the artwork. Um, it's eye catchy, and it's very that's very important. And that and but in in, in but customer reviews, and it's the word review is can be off-putting, but it's really a, a more like a recommendation. Like if somebody was standing next to you or, or somebody you knew picked up this DVD at a sales table and said, should I buy this? Is this any good? That's what you should write. Uh, and and, and uh, I think it's very important to, to do that for anything uh, that anybody has, has uh, kick-started or, 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 or released on, on Amazon because that helps the lesser-known stuff get discovered. Like a podcast, you should rate it on iTunes. This is the thing, is, and I talk about this on my podcast a lot, and I always say this to people, there is no such thing anymore as why wasn't this ad- advertised more. There is no <laughs> such thing. There is no, you know, if there's if you go to a silent film show and there's a lot of empty seats, then, then it's up to you to go home and get online and just post a link about the show and say, I had a great time. You don't have to be... Pauline Kael or A.O. Scott or anything. And I know it feels funny to to promote stuff. And, and a lot of times for people, mar- the words marketing and promotion are dirty words. But as fans, it's very important that we uh, participate in the ripple effect and helping to keep uh, this going because 
the more that people post stuff and recommend stuff and rate stuff, the more it can be discovered by people who were or weren't looking for it, but are interested. And it's, it's, uh, it, it, we are in this, at this, at this time. And I, and I think that, uh, um, you know, we're talking about the library of Congress and they're in a unique position where they're government funded. I, I'm sure that, uh, other archives, uh, if if they did not have to fundraise for every single preservation project they themselves wanted to do, they would be able to make more things available. But it's the, every every archive, uh, they're private. They're private op, uh, an operation. They have to have their own fee structure to make things work for them. Um, but in the you know in the meantime, there are there is plenty of stuff uh, that is available. Uh, uh, that's in the public domain and it does not have donor restrictions uh, through the Library of Congress and and it uh, yeah and w w it's really been for me it's just been very exciting to see more and more people doing this and uh, I think uh, uh, by, well, by the time people hear this it may already be over but Dave Glass and Dave Wyatt in England have just launched a Kickstarter uh, to do a Lloyd Hamilton DVD and I gave them some advice on, on production things and on, on doing the Kickstarter. And I uh, talked to Andrew Simpson, who, who, you know, he did a Kickstarter for a film called Whispering Shadows. And he's the most, Andrew's the fam most famous thing on the DVD, because this is a movie that's so obscure, it wasn't really well known when it was released. But um, he, he, he raised money, uh, I think he hit his funding goal in four days. I mean, it's almost like shooting fish in a barrel at this point, because what's happened now is that in the four or five years since I've started doing this, um, we've all gotten used to this idea of, yes, this is the way to get more stuff available. Let's talk about Marcel Perez for a moment. I mean, he was a comedian, really almost two or three different comedians, because he worked in different countries under different names. He was Robin A., he was Tweedledum, and so on. People weren't even sure if he was the same guy all of the time. And it's not just that you crowdsourced a DVD set for this guy that no one ever heard about, but also Steve Massa crowdsourced some of the research on Nitrateville and ended up making a book that was also published through Amazon. I, for instance, nobody was really sure when he died, and some of the genealogy-minded folks on Nitrateville you know, were able to track that down. Yeah, I mean, I think a bulk of the research is really the... Is, is really Steve Mass's uh, handiwork. Um, there are people who are turning up little pieces here and there, which has been great. Um, but uh, Perez belongs with the those second tier, as we would might call them, the second tier comedians like like Charlie Chase and Lloyd Hamilton. Uh, per, and I think the the trick with Perez is, um, yes, it, it's it's been hard for people to sort of track him because he kept changing his name and his. His uh, his uh, like his outfit and all that stuff. But Perez was someone who uh, was not just a comedian, but was a very talented director and gag writer. And and if you, the more I see of his films, you can really see uh, what a talented and gifted director he was. And the other thing is that he it wasn't so much oh let's trick everybody I'll change my name, but he was trying to constantly adapt uh, to the the to where he was working in the era he was in so you know the first year or so of, of american films he's making uh the character he's playing at for the in the films he's making at for eagle uh down in jacksonville is sort of uh based on what he had seen in keystone shorts and then gradually he moves 
back into an American version of his Robinet character, uh, who becomes more and more uh, middle class as as the years uh, go on. And I think probably the idea of changing his name was uh, again uh, trying to uh, play on you know he, his uh, European films where he was called Tweedledum were playing uh, here in the U.S. under that name and. So playing on that familiarity and then, well, Tweed Dan has, well, Dan is an American name and just Tweedy, um, you know, it, it just, it just seems like he's trying to constantly adapt so that people will, will, um, will, 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 uh, recognize him and be familiar with him. Um, and, and what's, what's been great is that every couple of years, a few more of his films will just turn up in different places. And that's how, you know, with the, the the second volume, you know, for the last three years, people would ask me and Steve, well, isn't there going to be a second volume? And we were like, well, if there's enough film and and enough shorts, eight more shorts have turned up through the Library of Congress acquiring uh, material and uh, and partially because we're lucky to be cooper- uh, collaborating, I mean, getting material from the Museum of Modern Art. There's two films that we're putting back together where we're getting one half from MoMA and the other half from material at the Library of Congress. Steve and I have found something that where, you know, Steve, every couple of months, he'll go onto the FIOF database and look to see if any more Marcel Perez uh, comedy shorts have turned up. And a few months ago, an, uh, an archive in France, all of a sudden there's a Marcel Perez short called Moving that hadn't been there before. And either, well, there's two scenarios. One is they got they just got this print and cataloged it, or, you know, there's a couple of lobby cards for that film in our Marcel Perez book, and perhaps somebody bought this uh, and was going through unidentified films, and oh my goodness, that's what this is. But it's 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 just nobody knew who he was. He was completely forgotten, and his own surviving grandchildren uh, had never seen his films until we put the DVD together, and they're thrilled as the more that we turn these things up. Uh, it's not just uh, uh, their grandfathers in movies, and now we're seeing them. But I mean, Perez's films are just. What's been gratifying, I think, for both Steve and me is that uh, the comments we get back from fans who buy the DVD and come to see his films at shows. And I've shown uh, Perez films uh, at uh, a show I do annually at Boise, Idaho, and these people don't know who he is. <laughs> and they, the films just absolutely uh, kill. And it's, 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 uh, he's ripe for rediscovery, and, uh, and I, I'm convinced there's more... Perez films out there in archives that people just don't know who that guy is and the more uh, we get his name and his face out there people who go, you know are at these different archives winding through nitrate will go oh that's who that funny guy is So I got my When Knighthood Was in Flower Blu-ray early because I was one of the 300 or so backers. And it's really a delightful film, kind of like if Olivia de Havilland's Maid Marian in The Adventures of Robin Hood got a movie of her own. And as a production for home video, I mean, it, it could not be better. It really compares to any release put out in terms of image quality, score, the booklet that comes with it. I mean, the whole thing is just first class all the way. So let's talk about this film. Why'd you want to do this particular one? Just and just to just to clarify, um, 
the release of When Nighthood Was in Flowers on July 25th on Blu-ray and DVD. And um, the, the two of the films that Ed LaRusso has produced uh, through Kickstarter were sent out just to backers. And I'm rele- he, he approached me about releasing uh, The Bride's Play and Beauty's Worth on, on, on the Undercrank label. So those are all three of those are going to be released at the same time. And it's been great working with, with Ed. I'm really thrilled uh, that he, he approached me about, about uh, bringing these two films out. You did the scores for those two as well? Yeah, as, as it turns out, yeah. And what, what worked also for me is that The Bride's Play and Beauty's Worth were the two films that uh, Marion made just before One Night It Was in Flower. And they're almost like dry runs because each of them has this breakout sequence uh, uh, with gorgeous, opulent sets designed by Joseph Urban. Uh, whereas knighthood was the entire thing is these uh, hugely expensive and ornate uh, 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 shooting sets, and some of them took up a couple of city blocks. Um, the reason I got involved with doing uh, when knighthood was in flower was uh, again I was uh, down at the Library of Congress in December of 2014. Um, this is right. This is you know six pallets of Ernie Kovacs and Edie Adams material had just been delivered. This is the that year the two big uh, purchases, uh, collection purchases that the library did were Jerry Lewis and Ernie Kovacs, and I'm the archivist for the Ernie Kovacs and Edie Adams collection. So I was down there for a week, um, helping uh, go through these stacks of stuff uh, that had been sort of inventoried by the the previous storage facility working with. Um, uh, Alexis Ainsworth and uh, saying this is what this is this is what that is I know this says Ernie Kovacs show but it's really this and you know all that kind of stuff and while I was down there I was also talking to Rob Stone about what else I could put out and we would just go through the catalog and uh, and see what's uh, what features there were I was I'd done so many comedy shorts I wanted to do something that was not you know a 10 minute comedy short and um uh, uh, we were looked at a few different titles that were complete, uh, were public domain and did not have any uh, donor restrictions on them. And so there were two films that I looked at. One was Captain Blood, the 1924 Captain Blood, which I thought was great. And One Night It Was in Flower, which I found really compelling. And I was like, you know, it's it's a film uh, with on the production scale of, films that Doug and Mary were making at the same year, you know, Robin Hood and and uh, and, and, and stuff like that uh, in terms of the scale and the scope and and the, the storytelling. And and I kept, you know, looking up stuff about when I did was in Flower and it's like it's never been released. No one's seen it. And it's hardly ever been shown ever. And I couldn't, you know, it's not like it was a stinker or anything. And I just couldn't figure out, and I thought, uh, well, this should be available for her fans. You know, and I'm, I'm not nearly as big a, a Marion Davies fan as, as other Marion Davies, Davies fans are. Um, but I knew that she had a huge following be- between uh, the, the, the Kickstarters that Ed has done and just, you know, whenever I've done shows of the past year show people people just flock to and they, they eat it up. And I figured, well, this is such a great film. And, and it's because that's the other thing that I, I found fascinating. Okay. She had made, you know, 12 or 14 features, five or six real dramas, uh, whether they were considered programmers or not. Uh, but this was this huge epic that was made specifically to put Marion Davies on the map. And that gamble paid off. And I thought, 
well, this should be a, this should be available. It's, it is a really good picture. Um, so that's that. That was like okay. Well, then that that'll be that'll be my. Uh, I'll, I'll make this a project, and then it was a matter of uh, looking at the the viewing print uh, and the preservation negative, and uh, we the decision was made uh, to go all the way back to the uh, nitrate because Marion's nitrate prints were acquired by the library many decades ago, and the nitrate's in excellent shape. I, I'm pretty sure that on. Beauty's worth, uh, they wound up scanning the nitrate instead of the the uh, preservation negative because it's in excellent shape. Well, it's interesting what you mentioned about how popular her comedies are because the only place I'd ever heard of this title was was in Pauline Kael's essay about Citizen Kane. And she cites this and Beverly of Graustark as the kind of overstuffed costume thing that Hearst wanted to see Marion Davies in rather than in, you know, broad comedy, which he felt was beneath her or beneath him, maybe. Uh, but in fact, I mean, it really, despite being a very lavish historical film, it is fairly comedic, kind of like, uh, you know, Fairbanks Robin Hood or something, and certainly not an overstuffed white elephant. No, no. I mean, what's, what's fun is that there are these little comedic moments, and... Um... That, that leak out here, here and there. And, you know, it's, it's sort of like, uh, I, I, I like to say that, you know, Marion gets her Mary, da- Mary Pickford on in a lot of sequ- sequences in the film where, you know, she's not this, uh, this waif draped in fineries, but she has these little feisty moments where she stamps her feet and won't stand for what her, her, her brother, Henry VIII is asking her to do. And, um, it's, uh, it, it, it's fun. And, and a lot of the, you know the the film I think Videobrary put it out in 1997 in a version that's uh, run at 18 frames per second, and a lot of the reviews you may read on IMDb or online about when Night was in Flowers say that it's very draggy and the comedy doesn't land well at just above cranking speed. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that uh, at a at a, a, a faster clip. Uh, a lot of the action stuff plays, it's very exciting. The whole chase in the last two reels and a lot of the comedy stuff just really, really lands. And, um, and the other thing that, that, that I kept thinking, well, why isn't this circulated? Why isn't this shown more? Is, is it, if you read contemporary accounts, it was on a lot of people's list of the top films of 1922. And, and that's, actually, that's how I, I found out about the hand coloring is that uh, there's a book that Robert E. Sherwood wrote of, of, of all the top films of 1922. And in this chapter, uh, he mentions the hand coloring of the torches and what a thrill it was to see them streaking across the screen. And, uh, and I thought, well, if this is one of the top films of 1922, why, is, why has it never been seen? And, and part of it is that um, it did need to be put back together. Yeah, you found a whole separate sequence somewhere else, right? It was it was one of these things where you couldn't have planned it, and it's almost as if this reel of nitrate wanted me to find <laughs> that it was there. Uh, I had the the full twelve reel roadshow version, and the big the first the beginning of reel three was missing, and it's very choppy and jittery at the beginning. And I figured, well, there's a minute or two missing here, and I'll bridge it with the title. I was trying to figure out where I would find this. Uh, Laura uh, Fowler, who's done the the, the wonderful booklet notes had told me that uh, Hearst's paper serialized the film and I was all set to go uh, to the uh, the New York Public Library go through microfilm and see if I could find 
the installation of that the novel the, the serialization of, of the film uh, to see if I could figure out what was missing and uh, Steve Masson and I went out to Hamlin PA to, to the vaults uh, MoMA's vaults which I'd never been there and James Leighton was uh, in charge of in charge of the uh, uh, the collection there now uh, and working out of the vaults and he invited us out and I was talking to him about one of the tint uh, colors in the film which is Biscuit which I've never seen and we all uh, I talked to a number of people Jack Thiexton and Uli Rudell and a number of people and we all figured well it must be some sort of wheat color somewhere between amber and nothing and I asked James have you ever heard of Biscuit oh he said yeah I saw that uh uh, at the head of uh, a reel of nitrate of when night he was in flower and when I was doing some research at the academy I said what there's another print he said yeah uh, he had, he was hoping to find the hand color sequences in his color research and uh, I didn't know there was another print and he contacted the academy and what they had is just one reel reel three <laughs> and it was ni- 900 feet and the, the one I had was about 600 feet and we worked something out uh, between the academy and the the gentleman uh, Michael Yakaitis, who had, who's who had, uh, who had, I believe had uh, either the print was either on deposit or had been donated there. Uh, then it was brought to the Library of Congress. It was uh, preserved and scanned, and I now had another four minutes. Wow! And it was completely, you know, I happened to be talking to James Layton. I asked him <laughs> about Biscuit, and oh yes, I've seen. There's this real. And, you know, as it turns out, these four minutes, you know, when I I had already scored the film at this point, and I always felt, you know, when I score a film, especially in a drama, there are three places where the love theme goes. When the, the couple first falls in love with each other and, and, and declares their love with each other for each other, uh, uh, a point somewhere in the middle where they're torn apart and they're, they're sure. yearning for each other, and when they're reunited at the end. And there wasn't really a scene like that in the, the version I had from, from, uh, from the Library of Congress. There was a scene where they, they meet and they make eyes at each other, but it didn't really cement it. And there is, this, there is a scene at the beginning of Real 3 that absolutely, uh, completely uh, is that, that scene. And I had to go back and, you know, rescore, you know, uh, not only re-record the new footage, but like, okay, that's where... Uh, the love theme goes in, and and, and it also sets, it also sets up. You never knew uh, without it. You never knew why they were going to the soothsayer, uh, and this explains the whole thing. Um, and it's a big plot point uh, throughout the rest of the film. When I read that that was what was missing in the booklet, I thought, well, that's a that's a pretty important piece of the plot to not have. Yeah, and it's it's just it. it there happens to be one reel of another print. <laughs> Uh, on the other side of the country, that is that is the the, the missing footage, and, it, and it's one of the things that that made the whole project last longer because I was ready to have this thing out last fall or last winter, uh, be, but because the, adding this footage, which I thought was m- more important than getting this out when I said I was going to uh, push the project into my very busy uh, performing time, and I it just took longer to get all the elements and for me to put my attention to it and. Then get get real twelve to Jack to do his magic on on that chase sequence, and even that chase sequence had there were shots that were out of order that I had to unscramble with the film put back together with the tinting scheme, with the hand coloring, with the shots that were out of order back in order, run at a good speed. 
uh, with a decent score, you really get to see what the big deal was in 1922 and why this film opened in September of 22. And then the general release version came out, the 10 reel version in the beginning, maybe in January, I think, or February of 23. And it ran for a few more months. I mean, for a film that ran that long, and who knows what the box office is. I mean, somebody must know. Um, and nobody, nobody's ever seen it in 95 years. Yeah, it's a lot of fun and a major classic film release. And it all comes out of regular folks. I mean, you're, you're a professional in this world, but you're not a big label. But you get to have a connection here and a connection there. And we all come together on the Internet and it happens. But it's, especially Twitter, this was a thing where there are a lot of people who are not on Nitrate Villain, do not necessarily go to Cinecon, uh, but are big TCM fans, people who are, you know, in their 30s and 40s and they're just absolutely enamored with this stuff. And those are people who I'm connected with on, on Twitter. And that's why, you know, once I got the word out on social media, the, the, the Kickstarter funded, I mean, I clicked on Go and posted links around <laughs> at noon. I taught my class. I, I teach a class on silent film at Wesleyan, and I taught my class. And while driving home, I hit the we hit the funding goal. Uh, that that does not happen with anything else, but because Marion's fans are, you know, they're they're happy to see uh, more and more of her her stuff. Uh, it was it was a, a, a it was a it was this, all these different pockets between Instagram and. Uh, Facebook and Nitrateville and and uh, and especially Twitter, I think the word just got out. Thanks to my guest, Ben Modell. All of the musical clips in the interview are from releases he's put out and scored. The opening and closing music and the third interstitial are all from When Knighthood Was in Flower. The first interstitial was from The Mishaps of Musty Suffer for a 1916 film called Just Imagination. And the second interstitial was from the Marcel Perez collection for a 1921 film called Sweet Daddy. Other music is by Kevin McLeod. When Knighthood Was in Flower comes out on July 25th, along with two other Marion Davies films, which were originally kickstarted by Ed LaRusso, Beauty's Worth and The Bride's Play. I hope you're convinced by now why you should back these kickstarters with actual cash. But if you'd like to preview these films, When Knighthood Was in Flower and The Bride's Play will also be on TCM on August 29th, which will be Marion Davies Day. For links to everything we talked about in today's show, go to the show post at nitreville.com. I'm off on vacation next, so I'm not sure what the next show will be, but I promise there will be one, so please, subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and leave us a rating and a comment at iTunes. Thanks.